Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name as ever is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading and rating and letting people know about the show. It's much appreciated. Coming up in this week's programme, we have spent the last number of decades optimising our lives to an exhausting degree, making sure we have the perfect recipe and that we get the most out of our holidays and that our exercise regime is exactly right. There are consequences for this relentless attempt to over-optimise our lives. We'll be finding out what they are in a few minutes' time. But it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Fergus McCullough from iCrag and Laura Healy from Chagask. Fergus, our first story has to do with this amazing NASA mission to grab dust from an asteroid. Yeah, this is a really nice story with a really cool kick at the end of it. So this is all about NASA's Osiris-Rex spacecraft, which returned this week with a sample from an asteroid called Bennu. And this particular sample from Bennu, I cannot believe how long it took for this mission to happen. This mission uh, left Earth in 2016. It then uh, uh, travelled through space for for two years until it arrived at this asteroid called Bennu. Bennu is about the size of the Empire State Building. It circled it for a further two years and then it began a slow descent onto the top of the asteroid to get a sample. It spent six seconds on the asteroid getting that sample. That that was it. Six seconds. Got what it needed and then left immediately and spent another few years travelling back to Earth where it landed this year. And why this asteroid is of such interest is because it's so old. Um, so it formed in the first 10 million years of the um, of the solar system's existence. And this means that it's like a pristine remnant of that early, early solar system, which is quite unusual. So it, it wasn't in, involved in the formation of a planet. When you're forming a planet, things get moved around, things get weathered, things get changed. This is like a time capsule right from... Um, right from the start of the solar system and could yield uh, really interesting information as the origins of the solar system, but also um, may even be able to help a little bit uh, with that theory about where where the water on Earth came from and whether it was seeded from asteroids. Um, on top of that, so the kick in the tail of this one is that this asteroid Bennu, in, um, in the year 2182, there is a 1 in 2,700 chance that it's going to strike Earth. Okay, so this has alerted everyone's attention and interest because if something has a 1 in 2,700 chance of striking, what are you going to do about it? So um, one of the one of the really interesting things is that when they when they landed on Bennu for those six seconds, they sank in slightly. So the outer the outer part of it is soft and that has a repercussion. Like if you think of a car crash, the front of a car is designed to crumple, say, to protect what's inside the car. Is that the same with this particular asteroid and would that affect, say, how we're going to nuke it out of the sky inevitably in 2182? (laughs) Very interesting. I saw photographs of them uh, taking the sample into the clean room and it's like, it's this giant sort of it looks, if you ever do training with kids football, it looks like a giant, giant one of those cones you put down as, as mock goals or, or like for them to s- jump around. Um, why is it that shape? Have you any idea why? And why, like, uh, and, and why is it so big? Because the sample is tiny. This is the black lander that landed yeah. down. Well, no, no. Um, the, oh. the, actual, the actual thing they brought into the lab is like, a, it looked like it was like three feet wide and mm. uh, three feet in circumference. I suspect that was largely for protection, but also to house the machinery. So, the thing that sampled was called a TAG-SAM, 
is what it was called, which is an acronym. Um, and and so it only sampled two hundred and fifty grams. But obviously the, the you know the sampling machine and everything like that uh, weighed a lot more. I suspect it was the mechanism that they needed to have there because when they were sampling, they they injected nitrogen gas quickly into the asteroid to kick up the dust and then that was actually taking out. So I suspect it's all of the apparatus right. around the sample itself. It's going to take them weeks to actually dismantle it oh, really? to get at the sample itself. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I once did a tour of the European Space Station, just one of their small facilities and the amount of effort that goes into even just like the particular paint they might put on a tiny part of, of one of their uh, space probes is, is, is absolutely incredible the level of work that goes into it. Um, Laura, our second story has to do with fleas. Yeah, so this is a good news story coming from Birmingham University who have found a solution to persistent chemicals that are in our water. So what are persistent chemicals? They are difficult to remove um, using conventional uh, water treatment systems and they're also toxic to the environment and to human health. So there is a huge need to actually find a way to get rid of them. And the solution that Birmingham have discovered is the humble water flea. So they're not actually fleas. Their real name is Daphnia, which is a much nicer name. I'd much rather be called Daphnia than water flea. But, um, and they also belong to um, the same group um, that lobsters and crabs belong to. They're crustaceans, but they're tiny. They're only one to five millimetres in length. So what did this group in Birmingham do? They selected four of the, the kind of the ones that are on the main hit list of these toxic chemicals that are in our water that we that are on the high priority list that we need to remove. Um, the first one is a pharmaceutical, which um, the one they picked was a drug called diclofenac. It's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. The reason this is on the list is because it's associated with renal failure in birds. And that obviously has huge catastrophic um, impacts on our ecosystem if the birds die the rest of the, the ecosystem collapses, you know. Wow. Yeah, so this pharmaceutical drug is persistent in our water and we need to get rid of it. Um, the other three chemicals they picked was an industrial chemical called PFOS. Its full name is very, very complicated. Um, but it is found in cleaning agents, foams and paint. So it's all around us again. Um, the last two chemicals they picked was a pesticide and a heavy metal as well. So what they did was they picked 10 of these poor little uh, water fleas and put them into a jug of water that was spiked with these four toxic chemicals at a known concentration. They gave them three days to clean it and when they checked back after the three days they found um, they were delighted to find that they actually had reduced these chemicals by to a huge degree. Did they train the fleas to do this no, or did they no. do it naturally or no. they, they weren't genetically modified in any no, way? No, no, no. These are actually some of them had been taken out of dormancy. Some of them were 120 years old and um, the fact that they could do that <laughs> after being asleep. For, Frozen in time yeah. uh, water fleas yeah. uh, solve our chemical waste problem. Yeah. So, so, I mean like these these studies are fascinating. It's really interesting, you know, to see how they work. But realistically, we're not just going to release a whole lot of water mm-hmm. fleas, are we? Or are we, are we going to, I mean, how scalable is something like this? Yeah, so that's the next thing that the authors want to do. They want to scale it up. Like, that is true. And I, I had that question coming away from this paper is, like, what actually is going to happen to the fleas? They want to put these... They're toxic fleas now, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're going to glow in the water and everything. Um, no, they they haven't come up with a solution for what they're going to do with the actual fleas. They don't even know where the chemicals go. So they think that it's probably accumulated in their tissues because it doesn't, they don't excrete it back into the water, but they where it actually goes, they're not sure. Um, so they might need to come up with another solution for disposing of these fleas that have now accumulated these chemicals. 
Uh, I'm not so sure about this. It reminds me of Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the mm. Hat comes back mm. and like he, he says, I'll get rid of this stain. He takes the stain off one thing and he puts it on the pair of curtains and then the kids go, oh no, it's on the pair of curtains. He says, don't worry about that. I'll, th- I'll throw my hat at it and then yeah. it's on the hat. And then he goes, and then, anyway, at the end, everything gets covered mm. in paint. And I, have a, I have a worry that this might be uh, a strong analogy for this study. So interesting and quirky, but... Um, <laughs> more research required it yeah. seems like great our third story uh, Fergus has to do with a return of Pangea yeah Pangea is on the way back and it's not good news for mammals so the long and and and, um, and short of this story is that uh, it appears according to this paper that mammals time on the earth is about halfway up so how we think of that is there's this thing called the supercontinent cycle which happens on the planet and it takes roughly about 600 million years all the continents come together into this huge continent, the last of which was called Pangaea, and then they break up. And where we are currently at the moment is where all of the continents are dispersed. They are going to come back together into this new supercontinent called Pangaea Ultima. So we would eventually be able to drive around Europe. We would. However, it's not going to be much fun because this Pangaea Ultima is going to be uh, enormous, but also incredibly hot. So the thing about it is that if you... um, if you have a huge supercontinent, you have very little of that uh, continent is exposed to the coast. Yeah. So the interior of it gets incredibly hot and incredibly arid. On top of that, in the formation of Pangaea Ultima, which to be fair won't happen for another two hundred and fifty million years, but um, it will. It um, in its formation, there's going to be a huge amount of volcanic activity happening. So the amount of carbon dioxide in the air is going to be way higher than now top of that the sun is going to be older so the sun is going to be giving out more radiation as well those two things combined is going to drive the temperature up outside of the level that we reckon is sort of habitable for mammals right now though I mean that's a long time in terms of evolutionary change you know if if that's a gradual thing it is potential that mammals as we know them now won't be the same but probably we may evolve to adapt to some of that change right yes but they may no longer be mammals so uh, a really interesting, thing that we, really interesting thing that we can learn from geology in this is that, like, we can look back in time. So the last time there was a huge supercontinent and its breakup, that that spelled the end for the dinosaurs, but the start of mammals. So, right. So what's going to happen to what we call mammals now? What will they evolve into um, in two hundred and fifty million years' time? It also raises questions of, like, thinking way in the future. If we need to find a new planet to live on, we're usually looking for: is it near? Is it near um, a sun? Does it have water on it? But um, do we also need to consider the role of plate tectonics on any new planet that we may go to? Because plate tectonics could shift things around to such an extent that a new planet we go to could also eventually run out of time for our mammals. Very interesting. Um, our final story, uh, Laura, has to do with, I say, I think I say yogurt and my kids say yogurt or, mm, or the other way around. Maybe yogurt. I say, no, I say yogurt and never, mm. oh, look mm. at the face. No, no, no. It's definitely <laughs> not yogurt. No, I, I don't How do so. I get yogurt? I've been saying yogurt my whole life. My, every I time I say it, that's an English it's an English thing, thing isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. is. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, yogurt then. And mm-hmm. um, this is to do with yogurt. Yeah, so this is the breakthrough you've all been waiting for. Um, <laughs> it's not the cure for uh, a hangover, which we're still waiting for, um, surprisingly. It's the cure for garlic breath. Um, so we've all been there. We've been in the Italian restaurant, eaten a whole plate of bruschetta followed by garlic bread. And then we realise our breath must reek of garlic. But um, while we would previously probably grab a chewing gum or mint, researchers in Ohio State University have um, come out with this discovery that we should actually be going for some yogurt after some garlic. Um, how did they discover this? They went into a lab and they chopped up a load of garlic 
and they put it into a tub of full fat yogurt, which which they then put into a machine um, that has a long, complicated name called Selected Ion Flow Tube Mass Spectrometer. It's just a piece of technology that's used to analyse trace gases. And what they found was that the yogurt was able to mask 99% of the odours associated with raw garlic. And it also worked on fried garlic as well. So being scientists, they asked How's this working? Um, They looked at the yogurt a little bit closer and they saw that it's made up of fat, protein and water. And they ran the same experiment again. So they put the the garlic into some fat. They chose butter. I wouldn't have minded being around for that part of the experiment. They put the garlic into a protein um, powder and they put the garlic into water. They were expecting to find out which ingredient of the yogurt was responsible for this masking. But what they found was that all three were actually beneficial. All three were able to mask the garlic odours. Um, Water? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the reason that this kind of, you know, um, confused them a bit was because, so when we smell, we, we have garlic in front of us and we smell it and our brain goes, that's garlic. But what's actually going on is we're smelling a profile of loads of different volatile compounds and the three ingredients that I mentioned, fat, protein and water, are, are able to mask different volatile compounds that are in that profile. So um, so this is important for maybe food industry um, who might be making this new bag of crisps that has garlic as an ingredient and they don't want to have the consumer open up that pack of crisps and be hit with a wall of garlic. So they would be interested in adding either a fat ingredient or a protein um, or some water to help mask the um, garlic smell. Um, But what's up next for this research is they're going to see if it works in real life. So I don't think you'll be signing up to this trial anytime soon. They're going to they're going to feed garlic to people, get them to eat some yogurt and then they're going to test their breath. So <laughs> why, why like why bother reporting at this stage? Surely it doesn't take that long to get people to eat some garlic and then do a quick t- like smell test. Surely they should have done that before or is it a refund is it a research funding thing? Is it two papers instead of it's one? It's two papers instead of one. I get it. Okay, right. Well, interesting. You can test this at home, uh, folks, and let us know how you get on. You can text us 53106. Uh, Laura Healy and Dr. Fergus McAuliffe. Thank you very much. Now, we have spent the last century optimising our world to get the most out of it. Is that necessarily always a good thing? Well, it's a question being asked in Optimal Illusions, a book by Coco Crum, an applied mathematician. She joins me now. Uh, Welcome to the programme, Coco. Uh, I I suppose when when I started to think about it, we we see this idea of optimization of of making everything as perfect as it can be for our own needs as possible and it's everywhere yes and you know the story i tell in the book is how this mathematical technique grew into not just something that's used in engineering but a mindset that's really overtaken how we see the world you hear it in our vernacular all the time. Um, I don't know if um, it's as intense maybe as I've seen it, for example, in San Francisco, but um, there'll be billboards for and advertisements for optimizing your HR or your sales team. Um, You hear people throw around terms like I'm going to optimize my diet or optimize, you know, my childcare routine so that I have more free time. You hear it in corporate 
speak, sort of how do we optimize productivity of employees? Um, and then obviously, you know, in in some of the fields that are more true to the, the original mathematical conception of optimization, um, like, uh, you know, civil engineering or, or supply chains, right? There's this drag. drive to, to optimize how quickly we get something or how productive a field is in growing crops or, you know, optimize our buildings for energy efficiency. It's funny, I, I start um, talking through those examples, you know, I start to see the problems already with optimization, but let's start with the positive. O- optimization is, is good though, right? Yeah, I, I think it's um, like any technology, it, it's it's somewhat neutral, right? It can be used for good, it can be used for ill. Um, and there have been many positive results of um, the techniques of optimization. We um, have a world in which food is more abundant, more universally available and cheaper than any time in human history. We have medicines and um, technologies that allow us to live longer and arguably healthier in many ways lives. And we have opportunities that we've never had in human history to travel around the world and to experience new cultures and and new ways of thinking. So all of that I, I see is very positive. Have you ever heard the story of Horace Fletcher? I have not. Horace Fletcher was uh, this very strange um, sort of visionary in a way who uh, came to prominence, I think it was the late 19th century, early 20th century, when um, uh, rations and servicemen kind of collided and there wasn't enough food to go around. And um, he came up with this idea of optimizing, uh, getting all of the nutrients out of food. And he invented a technique called Fletcherization, which is essentially to chew until the food disintegrates in your mouth. So you don't swallow, you just chew, 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 until it all disintegrates. And he thought that that would mean that all of the nutrients and all of the the good stuff from the food would be optimized. And this led to uh, him inviting, you know, famous people of the time who sort of caught on to this idea because of its benefits supposedly to, uh, to uh, to the war effort and and people would come o- call over to his house and they'd sit down and have a meal and the meal would take three hours and uh, it was so boring to have people just chew and unable to talk that he would bring in sort of like these string quartets to play music while people ate this <laughs> laborious and horrible meal. And this, I suppose, is, is a really good illustration of the the problem with optimization that that um, in many ways, really narrowing down something to wrench every calorie of efficiency out of it can have a hugely detrimental effect on both the user experience and the product itself. Yeah, this sounds, I hadn't heard his story before. He sounds like the the um, Frederick Winslow Taylor of, of mastication. <laughs> Frederick Winslow Taylor was also um, same era or maybe a little bit later, but trying to find the, the most efficient household movements um, to minimize the the labor that went into you know cooking a meal or um, cleaning a kitchen. Wow. Um, so what? So like yeah. the minimum amount of movements of your body to get the work done. Yeah, and also the um, optimal organization of a building. You know, a lot of actually his ideas have percolated down into you know what we think Ikea. of as modern design. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but to, to take it to, to chewing is a, is another thing. And, you know, what's interesting is we now, I when you were telling the story, I thought of um, some of these people in the slow food movement. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of that. Um, who 
you know, I, I've been to a few of these meals and while they're often um, delicious, it's also, you know, I, I found myself at times longing for that string quartet because it's like, <laughs> when is the meal finally going to be <laughs> ready? You know, I'm starving. Um, and there is this kind of perversity that's that's cropped up of late that is a response to optimization, but it's it's sort of optimizing for, for something else, right? It's like, can we optimize for conversation or, um, you know, these, these kind of more intangibles. I, I think it's, you know, it's in, it's in tech too. You see tech companies bringing in meditation gurus, um, to optimize for slowing down in this funny way. You sort of, um, brought us to the, the scientific side of optimization. Um, because of course, optimizing anything depends on your parameters. Uh, you know, the, the, the lineage of Horace Fletcher goes up to the, the, the current, um, or at least it's a, a maybe a five-year-old trend of of eating um, minimum food and minimum amount of times that some of these tech people have been doing, uh, and it would you, resulted in that product Soylent. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's like it's a powder you add to water and it gives you mm-hmm. everything you need to survive and takes ten seconds to consume. And, and so, uh, when we think of uh, optimization from a scientific or a mathematical point of view, you have an outcome that you optimize. T- towards right can you take me through the process of optimization yeah no that's a fantastic point um optimization as a technique i tend to think of it as it it comprised of three elements the the first as you point out is an objective function what are you optimizing for Um, the second is a set of constraints or parameters and the third is that process by which you optimize so are you solving it analytically or are you kind of iterating through a bunch of scenarios and possibilities to find um, the best or the the maximal. And I I do think we run into trouble. And and this is one of my arguments for, you know, why optimization has become so pervasive. Oftentimes, the quote unquote solution involves just changing the objective function. Um, So instead of optimizing for productivity, we're going to optimize for, you know, something like happiness that we measure through a, through a survey or something. Yeah. And it's actually very difficult to get away from this baseline conception that we should be optimizing for, for something in the first place. <laughs> well, I mean, is there anything wrong with optimizing for something like happiness, for example, so that when you think about your meal, rather than, uh, you know, cost uh, optimization or raw materials optimization um or you know uh numbers of tables you can fit into a restaurant whatever it is that you actually optimize for happiness is isn't i mean isn't optimization great when you are optimizing towards um a feeling of general good yeah i i, I don't think there's anything wrong per se right um i and you know we should be as humans we are engineers we're tool makers we like solutions we like to drive towards towards something and all the better if it can be something that's um seen as a good right or or feels like a good i think that the problem is that um oftentimes when we begin to optimize for something even if it's something like happiness right it, it blinds us to um first of all the other objectives in that space and secondly, it it allows us to forget our motives, right? Mm. Um, you know, we're sort of 
acting as these calculating machines driving towards this one outcome instead of beginning from a place of, well, what are our values, right? right. Or um, what are the, who are the people that we want to be, whether that leads to being happy or <laughs> something else. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense because if you even if you optimize for happiness, then you could end up spending $400 on your restaurant meal. So this, if you choose just one specific outcome, there's lots of problems. And you, you mentioned there about, you know, other objectives in that space, you know, it makes me think of, do you follow rugby at all? Um, no. No. Well, the Ar- Ar- Ireland are currently number one in the world at rugby, which is why I bring it up. And also we're mm-hmm. doing rather well in the World Cup, which, which is a big competition if you happen to be into rugby. Uh, and uh, the IRFU um, decided it really wanted to optimize its talent pipeline to bring about the World Cup team that we have. And um, and so they spent, I think, like 11 percent of uh, of some funding. I'm not sure what it is. Some 11 percent of a large chunk on this uh, elite talent pipeline uh, and as such it's spending a huge amount in developing this amazing world cup men's team but that means that you know the funding in in comparison has gone into women's rugby um as a recreational or even as a competitive sport uh, has you know has been much less as presumably as a result and so um by focusing on one specific outcome in an area other outcomes may not be as good Right, although it seems like it's um, paid off well for the specific done, goal. It's done very well for that specific goal, which we are all delighted about at the moment, yeah. Right. Um, no, and I think you see that um, in a lot of fields. I mean, there's the, the whole money balling of, of American baseball. Yeah, um, which is using fascinating. Statistics. Yeah, and that's the, the, sort of the, yeah. uh, the epitome of optimization, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, it does lead to these fantastic outcomes. I, I do think the, the more important losses than simply, okay, there are these trade-offs. If we're optimizing for one thing, we're maybe um, not putting those resources into something else like women's rugby or whatever it may be. Um, I think the larger problem, though, is that it cements this mindset of, of optimizing, right? And uh, I don't know too much about rugby, but are there other things lost, right? The camaraderie or simply the the joy of playing yeah. and, and supporting a team that, that may not be optimal, right? I mean, some of the biggest fans that, that I've seen in the world of sports like are are for the underdogs, not not for the the team that's been finely tuned um into a machine that that can win the the competition. Just thinking about Moneyball there, I mean Obviously, that's taking all the variables from a particular, you know, um, team and uh, and looking at the positive, looking at the numbers, and then crunching that for optimization. Um, with, with the development of things like AI and, and all of the data that we have now, um, is there a worry that the, there's a black box of what's going on in the middle and that we might say we want this particular outcome, but we might get from AI a very... Um, undesirable process uh, or or, outco- or or way of getting there. For example, you know, if you tell an you know, an all powerful AI system to reduce um, poverty, it might just you know eliminate all poor people. <laughs> so you know, I'm just wondering with AI, does does do we need to be very careful about how we we put in place the that optimization? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's a danger, not just with AI, which is, you know, simply a, a word, a, a fancy word for further automation of the computing that we've been doing, you know, for a long time now. But the, the farther we get away from an understanding of the models that we build and the more complex our models become, I think the more these risks emerge, right? So so if somebody is, is now looking at um, some problem in their life and they're thinking about going about optimizing it, what, what, what advice would you give them either to do that or to maybe think about it in another way? Yeah, to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, with optimizing. I, I think in that way a lot. And in fact, part of the reason I wrote the book is to explore <laughs> whether there are alternatives and, and how I, who had been steeped in this culture and mindset of optimizing, you know, what I could be doing differently. Um, and, you know, I think there's there's plenty written on how to optimize better on whatever axis you're you're looking to do that, whether it's health or money. Um, there's, you know, countless <laughs> self-help books on, on those topics. Um, I think the more interesting question is how do you step away from that if it's, if it's not serving you? Mm. Um, and it's not as simple as optimizing for something else. I think it is really just cutting off that, that kind of, um, hunger for technique. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the hunger um, for just perfection. And I think the, in terms of the way to do that, what I found helpful is, is sort of this returning to some of the things that optimization has put by the wayside. So returning to redundancies and slack and rest, right? Um, redundancies are what help evolution along. Um, mm. And in our human quest to, to optimize things, we often flatten or get rid of those redundancies so how do you sort of honor and let more of those kind of mistakes and missteps and redundancies back back into your life that's that's sort of one one way and there are maybe others as well yeah and, and of course as we've learned from uh, the story of the millionaire brian johnson who doesn't want to age and so uh he is taking all the nutrients he possibly can and measuring every part of his entire life to try and optimize it, including his nighttime erections, you can go down a bit of a rabbit hole if you get too obsessive about the whole thing. Um, if you want to learn about our obsession with optimization, uh, the book is called Optimal Illusions. It's by Coco Crumb. Coco, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. That, all that being said, I'm very interested if you have managed to optimize something, particularly with technology, if there's something you find a real drudge in your life and you've managed to use an app or a piece of technology to make it really simple and stress-free, please let me know. I am looking to continue to optimize my life. Um, now to come to some of your comments from last week. And uh, if you remember, we were speaking to David J. Gunkel, uh, professor of media studies at Northern Illinois University. And we were talking about AI. I don't know if this is a, it sounds like a film recommendation. So see Robin Williams as a robot who became a person in Bicentennial Man. It, I, I very much judge a book by its cover, despite age old advice. I saw the cover of that and I went, I'm not watching that. I didn't like the look of his robot. Do you know what I mean? 
it just wasn't a cool looking robot. And so I've never seen that movie, but I might give it a go now. Uh, Anne says, if I get out of the way of a low-flying drone, I'm not respecting its space. I'm, res- I'm protecting myself from injury. I'm afraid I uh, there's probably context in the piece that I now lack um, because I'm not AI and I can't remember everything. Bill in Dublin 15 says, Dear News Talk, it's quite simple. A person is a person which originates from being of biological origin, having a mind of their own and dying eventually. Your investigation is a worthy subject, but blurring the area between the person and the machine and a very dangerous idea driven mostly by private tech companies. Keep up the curiosity. Yeah, I, I mean, we're not saying it's a living thing. We're saying it's a person. And, and I guess... We already have things that are persons in in law, which is one of the points that David was making. We have persons in law that aren't biological things, but uh, but I, you know, if you think about this generation, right? This generation is the last generation that will be buried with just pure biological matter. The next generation will have some sort of cyborg element of them, whether it's an implant or a, a bypass heart valve, that will be there. So. You know, the age of man and woman melding with machines has long um, come. Like phones are already turning us into cyborgs, even though they're external. I sound like a tin hat guy. I'll move on. Uh, Our other guest was Kira Cassidy. Remember, she was talking about that amazing study of a T. Gandhi in wolves in Yellowstone. Um, Marinina on Twitter says, I'm a toxoplasma condi carrier. It might account for my attraction to free diving weirdos. (laughs) I'm really interested to find out how you knew you were a T. Gandhi eye carrier, um, Marinina. Uh, let me know if you don't mind. If it's not too personal a question, how did you become infected with this parasite? I think I better move on. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thanks for listening and thanks to Marisa Sullivan, producer, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, John Byrne and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.